spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. With me as ever in the studio, we have Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to be joined by writer and broadcaster, Benedict Spence. Hello. So today we'll be talking about anti-Semitism in Labour, the Paraglider Girls, and the problem with Parkrun. So make sure you subscribe to the channel if you're watching us on YouTube and click the bell, and then you'll never miss an episode, which really helps us out. So... The Labour Party's anti-Semitism scandal has come roaring back. Uh, There have been two candidates, two parliamentary candidates suspended this week. Um, Most importantly, uh, Azhar Ali, who was due to represent them in the Rochdale by-election later this month. Tom, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? Because he was caught spreading a really vicious anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Well, yes, indeed. In a way, it was the worst thing that he said (laughs) that um, set off this whole kind of scandal. So this story began when these comments that he'd made in this private meeting um, where other Labour figures, we don't know how many, were present, where he repeated, as you say, this anti-Semitic, anti-Israel conspiracy theory to say that um, essentially the Israeli government were forewarned about the 7th of October attacks and they, they let it happen. So mm. it was to, a pretext to invade and to destroy Gaza. So this started to rumble on for a couple of days. It got into this absurd situation in which Keir Starmer was effectively saying he's apologised for it, um, but he's a good guy and we're going to stand by him. But that quickly became untenable when recordings of the meeting were revealed by the Mail on Sunday, um, which had also found that he'd made this this second comment, which yeah. was to say that um, Jewish sections of the press had been making a lot of hay out of the Israel issue. Um, and it also later implicated the second MP, Graham Jones, who we might get on to, who's now been removed as a, as a candidate at the next election. So this is obviously being framed and we're talking about it here as a, question about Labour anti-Semitism. And I think it's obvious to almost anyone that the idea that it was mission accomplished on that front was yeah. wishful thinking, to be perfectly honest. This was never just a problem of a particular faction in the Labour Party. Um, and it goes a lot deeper than just the Corbynista activists who flooded in after Jeremy Corbyn became leader. But I also think, in a, in a way, talking about it just in those terms is slightly regrettable, because what we're basically facing here is the fact that we're going to have a by-election in quite short order, which is going to really turn on questions of Israel and Palestine. That's going to bring a lot of anti-Semitism along with it. Because as we know, Azhar Ali is still formally the Labour candidate. George Galloway is currently the bookies' favourite um, in that particular race. And obviously, not only the, the comments themselves, but also the way in which they've been handled, the way this is stretched out into a days-long debate now, is going to mean that what tensions already existed around this debate and in that particular seat are going to be even more heightened as a consequence of that. So it's it's a tragedy for our politics as yeah. much as it is a headache for Keir Starmer as some of the media might be talking about it. Yeah, and, and Benedict, I mean, how have we got to the point where the Rochdale by-election is about Gaza and not about <laughs> the cost of living crisis, you know, the leadership of the country, all the other things that are on everyone else's mind um, in, you know, coming into the general election? I mean, broadly, I think there has been a sort of a reluctance, a sort of a fastidiousness about certain sections of British society about not addressing 
prejudices that exist in various different communities in the name of uh, diversity and tolerance we're mm. actually not prepared to call out uh, bigotry that people bring with them from their own cultures anti-semitism obviously in this instance but you know just in general actually being a very large one and if you allow these things to go unchallenged you know this is not news to, to, yeah. to Europeans at all if you allow anti-semitism to go unchallenged it gets into every sort of crevice it's very difficult to get out and I, I do think that uh, it is because and I don't think it's a specifically just a labor issue actually I think it's a cross-party issue when it comes to anti-semitism but when you let when you let it slide it's yeah. very easy for it to find roots and grow and I think that that comes from a sort of if you like a lack of confidence from the liberal establishment of this country which is oh well we don't want to upset we don't want to inflame we don't want to cause community tensions they always talk about the community what the mm. community thinks we don't want to possibly upset the community and therefore we're not going to address the fact that anti-semitism ought to be in the 21st century in 21st century britain a red line actually at which point you know <laughs> liberalism if you like suddenly becomes rather hardened uh, in terms of people saying no this is not acceptable if you're going to sort of be participating in our politics if you're going to be moving to this country this is something Something you will have to leave behind. We've not been prepared to say that, um, and that is how it's been allowed to sprout. With regards to the Labour Party, um, er Eric Hobsbawm wrote about this in the 80s, about the idea of Israel itself, um, the Jewish people transforming themselves from the perpetual victims to the people that were asserting themselves uh, militarily, uh, economically, in all possible ways, undermined uh, for a lot of people on the left the idea of the Jewish community as being victims, which made them fair game. So you've got this sort of alliance of people who are on the political left who see Israel, and by extension Jewish people, as imp entirely sort of uh, an imp part of an imperial project or sympathizers for an imperialist project. And you have Muslim communities, not everybody, not all members right, of those yeah. Muslim communities, but certainly a lot of them who are politically active, who look at Israel as being uh, a bulwark against their own version of Islamism and something to rail against. Something that's very convenient to rail against what with many other oppressed Muslim people, but largely being oppressed by either other Muslims or by rather large players like China that you don't necessarily want to upset. They are a very convenient scapegoat. So you can understand, I think, why this has overtaken uh, local issues because it is something that is particularly important to, I suppose, the more sort of anarchy elements of these yeah. of these political movements for most people. Most people, actually, it is the cost of living. Most people are not going to go into the ballot box when we eventually have a general election in this country and go, oh, the government's stance on Israel and Gaza is really getting my goat up. That's what I'm going to vote on. Actually, they vote on their own situations. But we have to accept having ad admitted a lot of people from parts of the world for whom this is an important thing and not challenged it. Actually, this is something increasing that the, the Labour Party is going to have to come to terms with um, at a local level in certain constituencies in the North and the Midlands, I think. And, and Tom, I mean, do you think there's a sort of problem with Starmer specifically in terms of his sort of factional attitude to this? Because he has come down hard on, you know, Corbynites when mm -hmm. they've said similar or, you know, said actually far less than what Azar Ali said. But he was really reluctant to, um, to essentially throw the book at him. No, I think that's a part of that. I mean, one never wants to play into what was the sort of Corbynite refrain during the attempt by Keir Starmer to deal with the anti-Semitism problem, that this is basically just a factional problem, um, that this is something which is being meted out purely for factional ends. That's clearly not the case. Yeah. Um, and also there is a distinct and very strong strain of left-wing anti-Semitism, um, which clearly needed to be tackled. But of course, when you've got a situation where you've got a Starmer loyalist like Azar Ali, who was given... Uh, incredible free pass for a number of hours at least when it came to his own statements which were 
anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. This mm. wasn't a kind of edge case in a way that some of them might have been. It's going to draw those kinds of accusations. Um, but I think what's been clear through a lot of this, and it touched on what you were talking about there, Benedict, was that Starmer's Labour Party is very comfortable tackling certain forms of anti-Semitism, left anti-Semitism mm. in particular. But one thing that it's clearly tiptoeing around, and that has a bearing on this particular by-election, is Muslim anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism from within certain sections of the Muslim community. And what I think has become entirely clear is that refusing to acknowledge or tackle that problem for fear of it coming across as a form of anti-Muslim bias or stoking up kind of anti-Muslim sentiments or whatever has become in itself a form of anti-Muslim bias, I yeah. think. Because first of all, it presumes that all Muslims in a place like Rochdale are anti-Semites, obsessed with the Israel question, which is clearly not the case. And we talk about why has this become the big issue? You look at polls, even of British Muslims, Gaza is not their number one issue. Yeah. These people have bread and butter concerns like absolutely everyone else. So that's something which I find really quite unfortunate. There's a tendency to just conflate the perspective being put out by certain Islamic or even Islamist activists as the voice of the British Muslim community. There's that conflation which goes yeah. on, so therefore people tiptoe around it. The so-called community leaders. Exactly, so people, often, the people who have been yeah. kind of hand-picked by a whole multicultural structure to speak on behalf of the Muslim mm. community, even though they don't in the slightest. So I think that sensitivity play, you know, plays into that stereotype, certainly. Um, and it's also the case where wherever a certain prejudice might reside, you want to treat all citizens equally. You're about winning the argument. You're about saying, this is our position. This is why we're in Labour's case, standing with Israel in a very kind of mild, half-hearted way in which they're actually doing so. It's not, you shouldn't kind of break up the electorate and treat them yeah. as different blocks. But unfortunately, that's what our politics has been doing for a very long time. And that's why I don't think this is purely a case of migration. It's also a case about the society in which these migrant communities arrived into, which is one in which, particularly since the 1980s, they've been related to on the level of their supposedly kind of siloed identity. You're a Muslim, you think like this, you have these kinds of interests. Um, and a Labour Party, which has been particularly willing to play on um, foreign conflicts in order to shore up votes. Um, we've seen that in the Israel-Palestine question for a very long time, um, where when you get into a particular race, even a not particularly, shall we say, left-wing Labour MP willing to lean into some of those questions in order to shore up their support. We've seen it on questions about Kashmir and other yeah. things like that. This is something which has happened for a very long time. So, you, you know, you can't really be surprised when you have a politics, particularly a left-to-centre politics, which has addressed the sections of the electorate on the basis of um, international grievances, which they project as being deeply important to them, these politicians, um, that that's suddenly going to become the common coin of certain electoral races, particularly in quite diverse areas of the country. So there's there's a lot of responsibility on mainstream politics, really, for creating this situation, precisely in which you have a by-election where people aren't having out a debate on the basis of what are our interests in common? What are things that need to be addressed, not just in our constituency, but nationally, but in which questions of Israel, Gaza, and even anti-Semitism are swirling around this particular constituency in the Northwest? It's a, it's a horrendous situation, but this isn't just something which has emerged as a consequence of the politics of the last few months or even the last few years. Labour's abandonment of the broader working class is a problem here because, you know, if you look at somewhere like Rochdale, mm. the population, the Muslim population is only about 30%. Now, that's higher than your average place in the country, but it's not the whole population. Rochdale is also the home, famously, of uh, Gillian Duffy, mm. who Gordon Brown dismissed as a bigoted woman. Mm. I mean, is that the other side of it, that they can't rely on the organised working class because that doesn't, kind of exist anymore exactly it's the abandonment if you like of the sort of the traditional labor heartlands which i think was given a real uh, uh, 
a shot across the bowels when Boris Johnson won the famous red wall seats was the idea that ah, this traditional sort of coalition might not exist, it might disappear in perpetuity, we need to find new constituencies. And I think that that is something that Labour has to come to terms with, because also long term, you cannot rely on uh, the breakdown of various constituencies based on ethnic groups. That's an incredibly toxic future if you decide that that is how you're going to sort of base your politics uh, long term, because then you become beholden to these people and you're also playing on the politics of uh, dislike, of envy, of suspicion, because ultimately you will, will end up uh, isolating more and more the the dispossessed, if you like, the working class communities that existed there before will feel ever more sort of sidelined because their priorities are very clearly not that of the local Labour Party. Um, but, you know, equally, again, it's... A betrayal of the betrayal of the working class in this country is. I don't think it's something that's just sort of sprung out in the ground. I think a lot of people understand that. I mean, yeah. you know, we we could talk at great length about Brexit and the sort of uh, what's been happening in the Labour Party for the few years and how it's come to sort of reconcile itself on that issue. But I think the fact that you have certain MPs who have made it, you know, that's the thing, it's the MPs, not just sort of local Labour parties, but once they get there, they talk very exclusively about ideas of international conflicts and stuff, and they do completely just sideline domestic issues. Rochdale also is a very poor place. We can't get away from that. It has not uh, done particularly well out of globalization or anything, and certainly I don't think mass migration to the area has massively improved its fortunes. So to what end does it actually help those people to then have MPs turning up and saying, yes, I'm here to stand for you, but also mainly it's to deal with these people half a world away? Plenty of people dream about starting their own business. There's nothing more rewarding than getting your passion project off the ground and becoming your own boss. But that's easier said than done. There's so many things to worry about, it can be tough to know where to start. Luckily, there's a way you can simplify your business, and it sounds like this. Yes, that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the innovative all-in-one commerce platform that empowers you to start and expand your business. Shopify supports millions of businesses all over the world, whether they're trading in knitted jumpers or replacement car bumpers. Shopify simplifies how they sell their goods, both in-person and online, making clunky, complicated management systems a thing of the past. So how is it that straightforward? Well, Shopify has mastered the essentials, from a smooth point-of-sales system ready for your shop to a comprehensive online dashboard. Plus, Shopify will help you create an online shop front that you can use across all kinds of social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram. Don't worry about getting lost in the crowd either. Shopify has a huge suite of customization tools to help you keep a fresh image. And through a host of insightful business courses, Shopify empowers you to adapt your business as you see fit. So why hold back? Take the plunge and get Shopify today. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash spiked. Go to shopify.co.uk slash spiked to take your business to the next level shopify.co.uk slash spiked. So I want to move on to talk about a specific uh, anti-Semitic incident, quite a horrible one, actually. The, um, people may be familiar with the, the term paraglider girls is how they're being dubbed uh, in the media. Uh, this was uh, from a march um, back in October, actually, about a week after the 7th of October attacks. Three women were essentially photographed with uh, paragliders taped to their backs. Now, they've been sentenced uh, this week in court. They were found guilty, but they've been let off. Tom, now, we don't 
want these women to go to prison or to face punishment. This is a free speech issue. But it is slightly unusual, isn't it, for the British state, which viewers of this podcast will know, uh, take a dim view of offensive speech. No, it's it's um, unusual for the British state. It's also unusual for the particular judge who handed down this sort of non-sentence in the case of paraglider girls. So um, as you were saying, they were sort of caught really banged to rights. They were walking around with these paraglider signs that were kind of taped to themselves on a march a week after the mass fighters on paragliders had flown into Israel and murdered and raped their way through various music festivals and kibbutzim. Uh, they originally in their kind of police interviews tried to claim they didn't know what it was. Someone else put it on me. Oh, it was a symbol of freedom was the case that was made by experts during the trial. But it was obvious to almost anyone that, of course, this was an expression of support. If not for Hamas, the group, it was mm. for the atrocity that any reasonable person would interpret it as such. And so they were found guilty of these terrorism charges. Now, the sentence for that is a maximum of six months in prison. What they ended up getting was this 12-month order, which basically means as long as they keep their noses clean, they're absolutely fine. As you say, when stacked up alongside instances of feminists being, you know, rammed to the back of a police van because they misgendered someone on the internet or veterans sharing kind of spicy kind of anti-pride memes on the internet suddenly found yeah. themselves also handcuffed. This stretches credibility, to put it lightly, but also the judge himself is a gentleman called Tan Ikram, who um, had previously been involved in some quite high-profile and quite punitive cases involving some genuinely offensive, unpleasant speech, but nevertheless showing a marked contrast. So back in 2022, there was a policeman um, who a few years previously had been caught sending racist messages in a private WhatsApp group. He was given 20 weeks in prison, which is incredibly harsh going by the kind of standards of the usual kind of speech crimes yeah. that we that we see. Um, it's not to say that what he said wasn't objectionable, but also it wasn't a private WhatsApp group. These young women were publicly expressing, or a reasonable person might interpret them mm. to be expressing, support for an anti-Semitic terrorist group. So yeah. this is something which one what tries to make it stack up. Of course, the recent revelations, which um, have moved the story on even further, is the fact that Tanik, this district judge, um, was found a few weeks ago to have been liking anti-Israel posts on his LinkedIn page, which were saying "Free, free Palestine." It was another. It was a barrister making this post saying that Israel was a terrorist state and mm. all this kind of stuff. So I don't think we need to. <laughs> I don't think it's a difficult argument to land, shall we say, that there is a strong indication of a two-tier policing system yeah. here. Of course, the judge in question is trying to claim that he liked the post accidentally and that you know he took this to his um, local association. They said, it's fine, just don't worry about it, just make sure you unlike it. I don't think many people are going to be convinced mm. by that. And whilst this is a very legally sensitive area, I, don't think that the, we've, I think we could be very comfortable saying that this smells incredibly bad when stacked up alongside the increasingly punitive treatment, not just of other forms of racist speech, but even just kind of un-PC speech that we've seen yeah. in recent years, and the remarkably light touch that pro-Hamas, pro-Islamist, anti-Semitic statements have received by the British criminal justice system over the course of the last few months, that is staggering now. Yeah. And you can't help but feel for British Jews as they look at all of it. And and it seems as if you know the authorities actually go out of their way to make excuses for this kind of... Racism. So we had, in this case, we had the judge saying, mm. well, you know, emotions were running high and they've learned their lesson. Or previously, we had the Metropolitan Police saying, well, the word jihad is, you know, <laughs> yes. it's about a spiritual struggle. So it doesn't matter if there's a group of Islamists um, 
shouting it at an anti-Israel demo calling for Muslim armies to invade Israel. It's, it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Again, I think that comes down to a sort of a lack of fortitude when it comes to the liberal attitude towards multiculturalism, which is that there are certain communities that you absolutely should not try to insult or should not countenance risking insulting. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily... Uh, because they sympathize with them. I think it's because of ignorance. I think it's because they don't know the first thing. I mean, you know, one of the staggering things that you find out about this country is how few people who are not uh, of a Pakistani background speak Urdu, who are not of a Polish background speak Polish. But these are languages that are spoken by millions of people, but only by the migrant communities. There is no real interest from the, uh, the if you, for lack of a better word, the indigenous sort of upper middle class population of this country to actually engage with the cultures of these mm. countries. They just like the economic benefits that they bring with them. Uh, and, and that's where I think a lot of this stems from. It's a sort of a squeamishness not to actually get down into the sort of the nitty gritty. And you see this reflected in for example, the grooming gang scandals in the north of England, this idea that just don't ask about it, don't talk too much about it, because you know he could inflame again that word community tensions, not really understanding the first thing about various different Pakistani or Afghan uh, communities, and with no real interest in doing so. Um, ultimately, I think an awful lot of it also comes from a sort of an ignorance when it comes to Israel itself and the conflict that's going on there. People see images of destruction in Gaza, and they go, oh, isn't that terrible? Well, there is a lot of inflamed sort of tension and people are feeling very upset about this. So I can understand because I too feel sort of viscerally very affected by that. And there is that double standard there because it's the, 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 the sort of the sense is that because fewer Israeli people were affected than Palestinians, oh, well, therefore, that's actually how you weigh the balance yeah, of it. Yeah, good or bad. Yeah, that's yeah. actually what, what you do to measure this. Um, the, the double standard when it comes to other areas of free speech, again, that's because it's easy. If it's a white police officer uh, saying something a bit risque in a group chat, that's really easy to send that person to prison because ain't nobody going to come to that person's defense. Um, whereas, of course, the second that it is a member of a certain uh, ethnic or religious minority community, there will be that great swathe of, ah, oh, there are so many circumstantial reasons as to why this person is in fact a good person and they didn't know what they were saying because they don't have their own agency because that's how we feel about yeah. them. That is, you know, therein I think you see the double standard. Uh, and you see it in uh, all sort of aspects of life in the UK these days that actually we do have a two-tier system whereby a lot of people are treated sort of as second-class second citizens, not so much in that they don't have the same rights or anything like that, but they, they, they can't be blamed necessarily for the bad things that they say or do because of circumstances. Yeah. Whereas these white people, well, they ought to know better because they're like us. Mm. And therein, I think, is a real sort of nasty perniciousness. It allows people to sort of cover their class prejudice as well, which, you know, we all like to think has gone away. It hasn't. There is, and again, to go back to Brexit, you see that sort of manifesting itself in, in all sorts of ways. It is, uh, as Tom says, the, the double standard there where you can let some somebody off, uh, the judge says, oh, well, this person is effectively a half-wit and they've learnt their lesson. Oh, well, that's fine. But if this person, who just happens to be from another background, says something slightly risque, or yeah. I don't know, gender or something else, well, you ought to know better because, you know, you're from a different background. And I think that there is a real uh, bigotry there mm. that needs to be addressed. And, and Tom, I mean, in terms of the sort of broader context here, I mean, their anti-Semitism has absolutely skyrocketed. New mm. uh, figures have come out suggesting a growth of, you know, more than four hundred percent in just the past year uh, from the Community Security Trust. So this is a serious problem we're dealing with. This is not just a matter of people sharing slightly offensive memes or, you know, going on um, 
demonstrations and saying offensive things. There are mm -hmm. real, there's real hatred out there that needs to be dealt with and it isn't being confronted in any way. 100%. I mean, those community security trust figures are appalling, not least because it's the highest level of anti-Semitism they've ever recorded. And they've been going for, I think, more than 40 years at this point. There's been a 100% increase in violent anti-Semitic attacks as well. So we're not mm. here talking about someone holding up a really offensive placard or people saying horrible things on the internet. Um, the Jewish community is genuinely menaced at this particular time and that they look at their institutions and they see these profound double standards and this bias. Um, it's something which really needs to be reckoned with. Um, as we've been talking about the kind of double standards in relation to freedom of speech, I think that stuff is a sort of feature of having speech policing anyway. I mean, at the end of the yeah. day, if you have a state which is able to clamp down on hateful speech of one form or another, it's the biases of the establishment <laughs> or even of individual judges are going to make themselves felt, um, which is why it's a very good reason to just take the state out of the role of policing hatred in the first place and make this a question of, again, argument, debate, protest, agitation, um, and holding people to account for their disgusting views, but in ways that don't involve having to run to the police or the law courts. But we should come back to that fundamental context, as you say, which is the fact that in the course of the past few months since the October 7th attacks, although it's been building for a very long time before that, and people yeah. tend to ignore that completely, we've seen the emergence, the emboldenment of an anti-Semitic street protest movement. You've got Islamists riding high once again. You've got genuinely kind of racist and fascistic people who are feeling not only able to make these statements, but almost feel, as I say, kind of emboldened, like it's kind of their time. This is their moment. And this is something that we... It sounds ridiculous to say we don't talk about it enough, but we certainly don't talk about it seriously enough. Yeah. It's something which flares up every Saturday. People share the horrible things that have been said on various demonstrations in London, then it kind of peters out. Again, it flares up in the Labour Party every time they find someone who's banged to rights about it, but generally speaking, trying to confront the roots of this, whether mm. it be in multicultural sectarianism, whether it be in the growth of Islamism, all these things, religious extremism, are never really actually addressed. And the again, it's British Jews who had to bear the brunt for the mix of ignorance and complacency, which has met this particular issue in recent years. So we cannot forget about that. Yes, this is a an important debate about where the double standards are going with freedom of speech in this country and whatever. But the fundamental context is that historic, ugly, horrific rise in anti-Semitism, which no political party really has a, a genuine grasp on, I think, or plan to deal with. Nor do any of the anti-racist, quote-unquote, charities, it seems, or the entire you know, diversity bureaucracy mm. of the state that ostensibly exists to combat racism. But I think because the Holocaust didn't happen here and we have, in our sort of national consciousness, painted our post-imperial being as being opposed to Nazism and therefore opposed to the Holocaust, I don't think you've ever really sort of had to come to terms with deeply ingrained anti-Semitism in various institutions, be it religious, be it social. Now, a lot of those have sort of died away. Religion in this country, Christianity has died away. It was, And it was perhaps never to quite the same extent as it was in Eastern Europe and certain other parts. But I do think that that plays a part in it, that simply because we were the ones that fought the Nazis, we sort of go, oh, well, that's fine. You know, we're clearly not the bad guys. And any sort of prejudices that bubble under the surface well that's fine because they are under the surface and, and also the current sort of wave of hatred doesn't seem to be coming mostly from the far right well that's other, something that this country really struggles to deal with if a prejudice doesn't come from somebody who is quite literally goose stepping their way into the conversation then they just sort of assume ah well it, it, there must be some more complexity to it because everything comes from the far right the far right is perpetually on the march across Europe even though it never quite manages to get anywhere near power that is how everything sort of has 
has to be framed. And as you say, it is the Jewish community in Britain that suffers, not just in Britain, elsewhere. You would have thought, given that we are all people in this room who are sort of very much in favor of free speech, but if there were one sort of starting point, given the history of Europe and the history of the Middle East, frankly, if there was one group that you would say, maybe they get some protections as a starting point, you'd probably go, it's the group that had six million of them slaughtered mechanically uh, within living memory. And it seems to be in this country that no, actually, they're the ones that get shunted to the very end because Israel, and that's complex. And I think that there is something rather revolting about that, that we kind of think, ah, here is this massive historical precedent, but that doesn't matter because we're the ones that fought the Nazis and therefore we're the good guys and we know better. Talking about the rise of the far right, if you read The Guardian, you'll have heard that Parkrun has been almost taken over by the far right or influenced by the far right or the far right have uh, threatened this beautiful community-spirited uh, weekly run in some way. So essentially this is the story, long-running kind of uh, complaints from various uh, female sports uh, sportswomen that Parkrun allows essentially gender self-ID in a lot of its league tables and things like that in, in, in recording of records. Uh, I think it was discovered that around three of the sort of historical records that Parkrun has um, in the women's category are actually uh, by men. Uh, congratulations. Congratulations to them, well done. But essentially, Parkrun has responded to this by uh, deleting all of the public records <laughs> by saying no one will get to see their score <laughs> anymore. Um, thank you very much. Tom, what have you made of this row? It's one way to deal with it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, if, I don't know how anyone else could learn from that. But yes, this is something, as you say, which has been going on for a long time. As is ever the case when a story like this flares up, there's this attempt to pretend like the backlash to Parkrun had come out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, that piece in The Guardian you refer to, I think even suggests that basically policy exchange is at the heart of a sort of nefarious agenda. Is it the right starting another culture? It's the, yeah. Good yeah. Lord. What, what I love about that piece was the, stop it. was the specificity <laughs> that a shady Westminster think tank was leading this backlash against Parkrun as part of their whatever Pro agenda. Probably funded by US evangelical Christians. That's or, all, or Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Possibly both. Yeah. That's, all, that's always part of the story here apparently. But, um, but of course this has been going on for a long time. It's always been that kind of extra part of the women's sports story and debate that's been going on for a very long time. Which is that yes, Parkrun is basically a kind of weekly fun run as far as I understand it. Um, this isn't something in which people are expected to kind of compete at a very high level. It's not something where people are being routinely sort of drugs tested and so on. Yeah. These are not the kind of standards that we're talking about. But as I understand it, it's something in which people really enjoy those totals. It's something which can kind of spur them on. People who are having kind of either regional or even national records, that's something that they're naturally going to take a lot of pride in. And yeah. this is for people who obviously aren't going to be competing at the high level. So this is their kind of level. This is something that they're getting a lot of enjoyment from. And it, and as sure as night follows day, we find out that men are smashing those records <laughs> in the women's category because of this ridiculous self-ID policy. Um, I think it's regrettable that they felt like this was the only possible thing that they could do. Um, but that's the nature of it, unfortunately, because it, it's telling the Parkrun example as well. Because when you think about it, what to appease a very small number of people who want their own sense of themselves and identity to overwhelm basic fairness mm. on this app. And because of the media, they feel it's better to throw those women park runners under the bus yeah. than actually just say, you know what, we're going to have a male category, we're going to have a female category. You can even you know, dress it up as that's sex, that's not gender, we're yeah. not judging, mm. and there's going to be an open category of some sort. Mm. We'll just get along with that. Like That would seem to me to be something which should, in any normal era, please everyone more or less. Yeah. Um, and to the extent that there is going to be a backlash, that's just going to be from some quite unreasonable people. The fact that that wasn't the move, I think, tells you about where we're at 
right mm. now, which is the which is that um, it's um, it's almost much higher up the priorities list to try to appease at least a, a very small number of people who are shouting very loudly at you, particularly yeah. if they're coming from the media establishment. And uh, Benedict, I mean, the sort of park run uh, defenders, I guess they'll say, look, it's this is a fun run. This is not about competitions. Mm. It's not at the elite level, but surely. Shouldn't women have their own sports at the grassroots level as well? When do we decide that um, I don't know grassroots football or running mm. or whatever it might be doesn't doesn't matter? I mean, it's that sort of the creeping slippery slope idea that oh, it's just this. What's the issue? Oh, it's just yeah. that, that the issue, and then oh, it's everything, and you are no longer you know the majority. You're mm. in the wrong. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting that talking about the sort of the very vocal minority, given that we've been talking about the very vocal minority when it comes to Labour Party politics and actually how a very small but very determined group of people can get very far in life if they just shout and scream loud enough. Uh, then, and if they get enough people on side in the media who decide that this is a story and that this something has to be done, uh, that an organisation will decide, well, yes, actually, they're right, something does have to be done, and that means that we're going to have to cave. And really, I think that this shows the sort of the decline of the high-trust society in a way, which is that you need some basic things that everybody can agree on. I'm not talking about politics necessarily, just basic tenets of life that everybody can agree we're going to base ourselves around. And if that comes down to really basic things like gender categories, be it at school, be it in sport, once upon a time, those were things everybody could basically agree on. And okay, there were the odd examples here or there, but you may do, you found a workaround, you, you, you had a bit of a fudge, it was fine. But if we're even getting to that stage where the basic X and Y if you like, categories are no longer applicable and you just have to tear everything up and start again. It doesn't give you a lot of sort of common ground. And then if you have sort of very angry people on both sides determined that they won't back down on this, it's very hard to see where you kind of meet in the middle. And as you say, this is amateur sports. This is not something around which people should be centering their lives. And yet they are because a small group of people have decided that their personal identity, how they define themselves, is more important than absolutely everybody else's yeah. right to have fun amateur sports. Yeah, you know, that is the, and that is a tyranny, ultimately. Yeah. And as I say, it's it's not too dissimilar to people in Rochdale deciding, do you know what, Gaza is significantly more important than the ability of my hospital to and I don't think that we want to get ourselves into a situation where those people determine how the country is run, and yet here we are. And I think it's about how we find a way of outmaneuvering those people to say, no, actually, your voices are loud, but they're not the most important mm -hmm. in the room. That is how you will find political progress in this country and social progress. And Tom, I mean, the question of women's sports is actually not just about uh, league tables and things like that, or places on the competition team those kinds of things. It's also about things like changing rooms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen in various places where essentially trans women, as, as they're called, are allowed into women's and girls changing rooms uh, to compete alongside teams. I mean, that's a whole other level of, um, you know, a thing that needs to be addressed. Oh, absolutely. And I think it, it speaks to your, your point, Benedict, about there are certain things that we should, as a society, sort of agree on. Um, and that's not because we're trying to force some kind of consensus. It's because there are certain things as facts, as mm. biological, objective, easily observable facts, one of which is that there are two sexes. Um, and and we've previously understood in quite an enlightened way, I think, that certain things in society should flow from that. Yeah. For instance, sex-based rights. For instance, women's only spaces. For instance, the fact that we recognise that um, women, particularly if they're in a changing room or in a bathroom, whatever, are particularly vulnerable. Therefore, allowing biological males into that space is probably not a good idea. Mm. All of this has been sort of obliterated um, at a stroke but because of the desire to 
uh, essentially um, indulge the identities of a small number of individuals. But the costs of it are so incredibly severe because downstream from that is allowing men to compete against women in sports. Downstream yeah. from that is putting men into women's prisons. A hell of a lot um, happens when you concede the, it's not even the principle, it's just the recognition of reality in yeah. effect. And so to treat this as a, to present this as a culture or to present this as something that doesn't really matter, I find really strange. I also find the deflections from the people who've been writing about this, like that ridiculous piece in The Guardian, really quite odd, insofar as almost suggesting that none of this really matters unless you're talking about the Olympics, yeah, which yeah. is an odd <laughs> approach anyway. First of all, because I'm pretty sure the author of that article probably wants gender self-ID in the Olympics, so yeah. I don't really get why he's even making that point. But also, grassroots sports, fun runs like this, things like that, it's how the vast majority of people engage and participate in sports. It's a very tiny, tiny, tiny number of people who get to compete at the top yeah. level. Are we to suggest that fair sport and competition and people being able to, again, be rewarded for their own achievements in their specific category should only exist when you get to the very top level? Of course they don't, but mm. it's the fact that they're having to trot out those arguments, I think, on one sense shows that they're on the back foot a little bit. They realise that they're being... They're losing the argument in so yeah. many different ways. Mm. And so they're reduced to even making quite spurious arguments or just trotting out people are going to die if you don't mm. indulge their gender identities, et cetera, which is, has been resurrected this week, even in relation to the park run thing somehow. It's just the thing that always strikes me about the changing room or the prisons argument, which is that trans people claim that they are a different gender born in the wrong body or whatever it is. And it's always the thing that I think is that there is a visceral fear that the average man can understand but can't entirely sort of empathise with that a woman has about the idea of a man being with her in a very vulnerable situation. If these people were truly women, they would understand that fear as well and they would be prepared to concede some ground on this to say, well, maybe there need to be third changing rooms. You know, we've heard about the sort of the, the, the non-binary lavatories or whatever it might be, but maybe there should be some common ground rather than, no, I am a woman and I demand to barge right in. And that is always the thing that it really sort of sets off the alarm bells. It's not that there is some sort of commonality with women that, oh, I am a woman and I understand the fear that women understand. It's no, I am a woman and I demand access to your spaces, which I happen to think is a rather masculine attitude. And it's always, <laughs> Is that you know it, I am who I am. I demand it. I have a right to it. I'm going to take it. Which you know, without meaning to generalise, it does seem slightly more uh, forceful, if you yeah. like, than the average woman who doesn't necessarily barge straight into a space and take what she wants. Uh, that's always been the thing that stands out for me about this whole debate. That there is just something quite off about it there. Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.